0: And candidates in states with razor thin margins. Listen to Build the Change Now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: everybody, and welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm your host, Wajahat Ali, and my wonderful co-host, Danielle Moody, is relaxing and chilling with her much well-deserved rest. But I am lucky to be joined by my friend here, the excellent, informed, and brilliant journalist and professor, Samuel G. Friedman. He is an award-winning author, a former columnist for The New York Times, a professor at Columbia University, and the author of 10, count them, 10 acclaimed books, including a fascinating book that is coming out this week called Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. Samuel, thank you for joining me, sir. It's great to be with you, watch out. Uh, You know, so here we are. It's the year 2023. You've written 10 books. Um, and your 10th book, which is out this week, you know, you decided to take the DeLorean all the way back, 75 <laughs> years. And I'm sitting here thinking, Sam, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening. Uh, there's a rise of fascism, the mainstreaming of white nationalism, the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism. Our democracy is under attack. The world is on fire. Why, oh, why did you set your microscope 75 years ago at the Democratic Convention of 1948?
2: You know, Wajat, it's weird how time sometimes meets you in ways you can't predict, When I started this book about Hubert Humphrey and the civil rights battles of the 1940s, I thought I was engaging in just a work of history. I thought I was filling in some important gaps about what a lot of Americans, even those who are familiar with the civil rights movement, didn't know about the important events of the 1940s, a full 10 or 15 years before Brown versus Board of Ed and the Montgomery bus boycott with Dr. King. But I started this in February, 2015, we're towards the end of the second term of Barack Obama, we're a few months away from marriage equality being confirmed by the Supreme Court. It looked like we were on some kind of a glide path towards becoming an even better version of a multicultural democracy. We know what happened in November of 2016. And Mm. that totally changed the way I felt about the book. Because at one level, It's still the book that I thought I was writing at the start, which is to tell this really important historical story and to let people who don't know much about Hubert Humphrey know about what a vital person he was and to recenter him for people who only associate him with the worst moments of his political life, his support for the Vietnam War, as Lyndon Johnson's vice president, his failed presidential runs. But then we entered the Trump era, which unfortunately is still going on. And I've come to realize that a lot of what this book is about and the lesson that Humphrey's example has to teach is that in the 1940s, he was engaged in a battle of inclusive, interracial, interfaith democracy against an authoritarian movement that used the same terms we use now, white supremacy, Christian nationalism, America first. Those were the exact terms Mm. that were associated with the people who, Humphrey battled against. And really, the only difference, Rajahat, is because of the changes in immigration and democracy and, um, you know, a more affirming sense of the broad American public. At the time Humphrey was active, we were thinking in terms of um, the fight against racism, the fight against anti-Semitism, against um, anti-Catholic views. It was really before we had a large and growing Muslim American population, before we had many LGBTQ people who were out, um, you know, before there's been a whole stream of Asian and Caribbean basin and so forth, immigrants to this country. But Humphrey would be fighting those battles today if he were alive too, I'm totally convinced. And the lesson to me isn't that progress is never made. The lesson is that you don't hold the the ground you win as a progressive permanently, that backlash comes. The more you accomplish, the fiercer the backlash is. And the more you have to be prepared to fight the battles over and over and over again. And the enemy is not just America first and white nationalism and Christian nationalism, and white supremacy. The enemy is your own complacency.
1: You know, it, it, everyone uses the uh, movie metaphor of Groundhog's Day, but I'll throw an edge of tomorrow. Which is Groundhog's Day with Tom Cruise fighting aliens? It's like the same <laughs> fight again and again, and the parallels in the book and I, you know I, I didn't know this part of history is it, so stunning, like you mentioned, right? That it's it's the same the same problems, the same complacent complacency, the same white moderates, the same fear of the uh, the Rust Belt whites, the economic anxiety argument, mm-hmm. and it's like a reboot, and and we're here in forty eight now, nineteen forty eight uh, 75 years ago, it's, uh, it's Truman versus Dewey and and Truman's an underdog. And here's Hubert Humphrey, who's 37 years old. And he gets up at the podium at the DNC and he says, Hey, we should be fighting for an inclusive America. Mm -hmm. take us like what was happening at that moment that inspired him to get up in front of that democratic party and say you know instead of shying away from the blacks and the latinos mm-hmm. and terrifying the moderate whites we should actually expand the pie
2: that's a great question and just to give everyone a sense of how daring humphrey was at that time it's not just that people who were the conservatives or the reactionaries or the bigots of that time had retrograde attitudes that's what you sort of expect but As great a president as Franklin Roosevelt was in a lot of ways with the New Deal, the New Deal assumed that if you addressed inequality only through the prism of economic class, that you would lift every boat, as the cliche goes, that, you know, minority groups or groups that are othered in the society would somehow benefit by an attention to class inequality. And that was a very imperfect flawed analysis to begin with. But on top of that, Franklin Roosevelt made what I think can literally be called a devil's bargain. The New Deal coalition that he assembled had a few of the pieces you might expect. Organized labor, uh, college-educated liberal intellectuals, urban Jews, urban Catholics, um, you know, the populations of particularly Mexican Americans, that had already made it here, Lebanese immigrants from Lebanon and Syria, not in the numbers we've now, but that was sort of the New Deal coalition components you'd expect. But FDR also included the Southern segregationist wing of the Democratic Party. And to understand The
1: Dixiecrats. That,
2: The Dixiecrats. And you have to flip the script from what we have today. Today, we associate the Republican Party in the South as well as the North too, but as being the party of white supremacy. Back then, it was the Democratic Party. And FDR made this decision. He needed to win the Southern votes, electoral votes, to get elected. He needed the votes in Congress of these Southern- Senators and representatives, many of whom had a lot of seniority and a lot of power. And the deal he cut with them was these class based New Deal programs are going to be implemented and sometimes even written in a way to allow segregation in the South to persist. Mm. So, just one example we all know Social Security. What a lot of us don't know is the Social Security Act was written, so it did not include agricultural workers and domestic workers. In the Jim Crow South, Guess what jobs 90% of working black men and women had? Agriculture or domestic work. They couldn't benefit from social security. And other programs in the South would just be implemented in a racially imbalanced and unequal way. And Humphrey, in a way that's really amazing, comes to extend his political vision beyond the class-based New Deal politics to what we would now call identity politics. To me, that's not a negative term, by the way. And what do you mean? I
1: mean, and Sam, I mean, as as also in in addition to being a journalist and historian, I I always am amused by when identity politics is, is derided. But isn't that what white voters have been doing in America since forever?
2: It's forever, and it's even what they used to call in New York City back in the day a balanced ticket that would have a Jew, an Irishman, and an Italian. Anyone who could together. pass for white at that time. Right. But all these different subgroups. So that was identity politics then, absolutely. And, but Humphrey understands that just operating through class doesn't reach everyone and that there are people who've been othered who are cut so far out of the economic pie that the New Deal remedies weren't going to be enough. For instance, in Minneapolis, where Humphrey becomes mayor, It's not just that management in in private industry won't hire blacks for anything but the most menial jobs and won't hire Jews except in small numbers. Labor unions don't want them either. Organized labor is very prejudiced against them. And that's just one example among many. And so Humphrey realizes, partly as a result of something we can talk about later, which is a year of going to graduate school at LSU in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, he realizes that you've got to do more than just have programs that'll provide a social safety net. That's great, but it's not enough by itself. And that's the fight he wages at the 48 convention because Harry Truman, who's going to be the Democratic nominee for president and is the incumbent, although at points Truman has moved pretty boldly on civil rights, ultimately decides, I want to win election in 48. I'm going to back away. I'm going to go to the FDR playbook. Don't say anything that's going to offend the segregationists
1: in the South.
2: And um, Humphrey challenges that
1: frontally. And when when Humphrey challenges that, does that go over like a wet fart with, <laughs> with the white Democrats? Because I think it's important for people to realize, uh, you know, this is what's different is that, and I'm glad you mentioned this, is that, yeah, now you have a multiracial, multicultural democratic coalition where there are still Tension and the, the tension that exists is because of this legacy where a lot of the white folks were like, eh, racial prog- progress and equity, we'll just punt it for another decade. We'll keep well, punting I, it.
2: I actually think at this moment in time, and as part of the tragedy of the failure of collective memory, I think at this moment in time, there were within the Democratic Party enough white ethnics who were close enough to their own immigration experience, who were close enough, particularly if they're a Catholic to feel like they had been uttered to be a little more receptive. They weren't exactly forward-looking, but they also understood the electoral math. Some of Humphrey's unexpected support at the 1948 convention when he's pushing this, you know, very positive civil rights plank of the sort the Democrats had never accepted before, he's getting support from some of these big-city Democratic bosses who are not exactly your classic liberals. But they can actually see that if the Democratic Party doesn't become more inclusive, then it's going to lose elections. That Not only will Harry Truman lose at the top of the ticket, but they'll lose these down ballot races as well. I think another difference is that there were not a lot, but there were enough people in organized labor, like Walter Ruther of the United Auto Workers, who understood that organized labor had to start moving in the direction of civil rights. And that moment, was there in the 40s, and tragically, it's been lost and forgotten by a fair amount of organized labor and by a great many white ethnics. But it was present then. And watch out, the last thing I want to say is the effect of World War II, that this country had just finished fighting a global war against fascism, against forms of racial supremacy and religious supremacy. And a lot of blood and treasure had been spent on that. And there were a lot of black GIs and also Jewish GIs who came back from the war and said, "Well, what about the hatred at home now?" Mm. And that was a pregnant question, and it began to, I think, rouse the conscience of a certain number of um, of white Catholics and Protestants of goodwill. And again, what's really unfortunate is that the memory of that and that alliance hasn't lasted in the same way, but it was front of mind enough then that people could hear Humphrey because the incredible thing when he gives the speech at the 1948 convention and says, we've got to walk out of the shadows of states' rights and into the bright sunshine of human rights. And for those who say it's too soon to move on civil rights, I say it's 172 years too late, marking mm. back that to 1776. There are no black delegates in any numbers to vote for that. There are no Latino Delegates, there are probably no Muslim delegates. There are I, no, I will black.
1: venture and say no.
2: <laughs> there are like 12. There are, I think 12 black delegates out of 1,500. So to win that vote, as Humphrey did, he actually had to persuade a huge number of white folks to go with it.
3: From the New Yorker staff writer, Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood, that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold.
0: Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves, real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's 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 basically what he did was without realizing it, he did the race class narrative that Obama uh, and, and Democrats since then have tried to emulate, where you yes. can't divorce race from class. And if you if you combine it in a way which is uh, engaging and honest, you can actually unite workers and, and people of color with these white workers who historically ha- have been misled, I would say, with a divide and conquer technique by white nationalists, by, uh, by racists, by by nativists.
2: No, that's totally true. And this is the, you know, a great achievement. And it's one of the things that ultimately helps Lyndon Johnson with Humphrey's help enact the civil rights laws of the mid 1960s, enact the great society, social safety net legislation, and certainly gave us the um, Obama um, coalition. The um, it, But we also know that these things don't last. The progress, as I was saying before, brings a backlash and in a way, In Humphrey's time, he was addressing the backlash that followed Reconstruction. He was addressing the backlash that followed the end of mass immigration in 1924. The next backlash was going to be massive resistance, as they called it in the South, against the civil rights movement in the Brown. Well, I mean, Brown versus
1: Board of Education. I mean, I mean, the thing is, the the reason why I think it's so important for folks is to connect the dots. Is that what we're witnessing now? it has always been part and parcel of the American experiment, right? I mean, you see see a young, uh, I guess you could call him a progressive, uh, Hubert Humphreys at that time, challenging the establishment. Uh, He was a couple of years ahead of the curve. You saw white moderates who knew what they had to do, but were terrified, Mm -hmm. uh, didn't want to risk any equity. Instead, they found out, oh, this multicultural coalition is what actually helped the Democrats win. That famous photo of Truman, Holding the newspaper because Truman was supposed to lose. People forget that, right? Do I mean they already said Dewey was going to win?
2: Oh, Truman was behind in every poll. And he, you know, the Democratic Convention in 48, one part of it was this bitter fight over civil rights. The other part was this totally glum defeatist mood that okay, we're gonna nominate Harry Truman and he's gonna be toast. But this is key, but, uh, the reason Harry Truman wins. The reason there is that famous photo of him holding the Chicago (laughs) Tribune headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, and laughing at it, is one reason, a surge of black voters. When the Democrats endorsed civil rights in their 48 platform, Truman had no choice but to run on civil rights. Mm. Two weeks after the convention, he desegregated the military and he desegregated the federal workforce. And it's not like he did this out of the goodness of his heart, the great black labor leader And civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph, who had been protesting outside the Democratic Convention Hall in 1948, Randolph was traveling the country mobilizing massive black draft resistance. Hmm. He was saying black young men should not register and should not serve if called up until Harry Truman desegregates the military. And Truman does that two weeks after the convention. The last weekend before election day in 1948, he becomes the first major party candidate for president To hold a campaign rally in Harlem, the symbolic capital of Black America. And on election day, he wins more Black votes than FDR ever did. And he has such a surge in three key swing states that those states, I believe it's Ohio, Illinois, and California, give him together the electoral votes that put him over the top. That's the reason he won civil rights and the Black vote. There is no other reason.
1: And what's so fascinating is that victory and the desegregation then allows, if you will, the cultural seeds to be planted that eventually lead to Brown versus Board of Education. Exactly. Uh, and, and 1953, uh, you know, it go it gets decided in '54, and we're seeing a replay of the white lash of '54 in 2023 with uh, Moms for Liberty. Which yeah. uh, recently, as of last week, was referred to. Uh, uh, this is a hate group, by the way, folks. Yeah. These are the extremist right wing suburban moms, uh, uh, you know, literally uh, paid by big right wing money to uh, basically ban books and harass uh, educators. And they were called by ABC News as joyful warriors hmm. fighting back.
2: Yeah, but by the Southern Poverty Law Center, a hate group, and there you go. That, that's the definition I'll take. And watch out! I'm so glad you brought up the fact that they pretend to be this grassroots group, but they get their money funneled through some of Leonard Leo's dark money groups.
1: Right, and 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 we could talk about that, Leonard Leo, Leonard Leo, who by the way just got 1.6 billion dollars last year from Chicago businessman Barry Said. He's the man who is the intermediator, folks. Uh, between right-wing money and the Federalist Society, and has helped pack the courts to bring this country back to 1952 or 1953. But speaking about the parallels, here's you know here's Hubert Humphrey. He comes out. He makes this race-class narrative. Uh, Truman hesitantly picks it up. Oh, look, the blacks came out and, and gave me the victory. Right. Uh, desegregate the military. 1953. Brown versus Board of Education. At that time, there was another Moms for Liberty group that came out, Joyful Warriors, pretty much the exact same narrative, white suburban moms, mm-hmm. uh, incensed that a black girl might uh, have the audacity to sit in a classroom and get the same education uh, as her white son and white daughter. And there's a cost. The cost to all this is that the Democrats, for a generation, lose Southern whites.
2: Well, Well, actually, I mean, what happens is that After what seems to be this breakthrough for the Democrats in 1948, Truman becomes unpopular. Mm. The Cold War changes the American narrative to searching for communists under the bed, which really undermines the liberal project. And basically, you have timidity by all the major national politicians. Eisenhower as a Republican, Adelaide Stevenson, and then JFK on the Democratic side, they're all timid on civil rights. And Stevenson and JFK even think maybe we can sort of entice the segregationists back in. So the '50s, you have tremendous action by the mass movement, by Dr. King and Fred Shuttlesworth and all the other leaders of the freedom movement. John, you know, John Lewis comes along a little later in the early '60s. Diane Nash, Fannie Lou Hamer. So, but there's this period of mass mobilization, and yet at the political level, it's retrenchment and timidity, and that doesn't change the political response doesn't catch up to the mass movement until Kennedy is assassinated Hmm. in 1963. Johnson assumes office and decides he's going to make civil rights his linchpin issue. And that's when suddenly the political activity catches back up to the progress, the moral awakening, the kind of righteous discomfort that the movement was causing America.
0: and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: But I think what's important for for people to recognize, especially now, because there's so many problems and there is a retrenchment happening uh, because we have historical amnesia and people, unfortunately, don't know uh, about the Nazis and what happened in Italy and the rise of fascism, and uh, you know, even though democracy is deeply troubled, it's the best form of government we have, especially in comparison to authoritarianism. Yes. This retrenchment that that can cause so many of us to be apathetic, uh, uh, Sam. I think it's important what you just said is that it took ten years worth of organization and work uh, at the grassroots uh, to push. To 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 influence, to inspire, and then it caught up to the moment.
2: Right. You have to have both. I mean, at the 1948 convention, Humphrey is Mr. Inside. He's literally inside the convention hall, giving the speech, working with people in the party to push the civil rights plank in. A. Philip Randolph is literally Mr. Outside. A. Philip Randolph isn't even a Democrat, he's a socialist by Ideology and also political party affiliation. He's literally outside the hall, leading these protests, calling for draft resistance. And after the success of the Civil Rights Plank, there are these letters I've read that go back and forth between Humphrey and some of Randolph's lieutenants, each saying we couldn't have done it without you. They understood they needed the other. And there's a great book by uh, Nick Cotts, wonderful writer who unfortunately died a few years ago, called Judgment Days, which is about the parallel experience of LBJ and Martin Luther King in the mid-60s. They each needed each other. Johnson was the ultimate insider, but he needed King to be bringing mass pressure from the outside. And King could bring mass pressure, but you still need someone who can execute the political success on the inside. So there's always been this symbiotic relationship.
1: This push and pull. And I want to talk about the opposition. Because you mentioned that many of those same forces that Humphrey and Truman had to face have essentially, uh, if you will, resurrected themselves <laughs> in the yes. Martin era. Uh, and we had the Southern strategy that was born from Arizona. Goldwater failed with it, but Nixon ran with it and said, okay, right. divide and conquer based on whiteness exactly. and race. Right. It works. Uh, what are we witnessing now, Sam?
2: Well, we're witnessing a replay. I mean the language is just about identical. You know, this language that right-wingers use about freedom, attacks on freedom, that was the exact language that the Dixiecrat Democrats used in 1948 to attack civil rights. That this isn't going to, not only will this destroy the cherished ways of the South, this will destroy American freedom. They used Mm. the exact same phrase. Liberty,
1: freedom, heritage, identity.
2: Heritage, identity, all of it. They talked about America being a Christian nation. They appropriated Christianity as if there was no, as if there had never been a liberal Christian tradition, as well as a you know a conservative variant of it. But they, you know, took the cross and made that their symbol for the American right. Um, the othering of people now it might be a trans person or it might be you know an American Muslim, but at that time it might be. You know, a Jewish person or a black and Gerald L. K. Smith, who I mentioned before, who ran for president on the America First Party, and who was famously called by the Communist Walter Walter Winchell a hatriot.
3: Mm. So
2: great, you know, portmanteau between hate and patriot, someone pretending to be a patriot, but running on resentment. Gee, where have we seen that recently? I can't even imagine. Um Smith was saying explicitly we want to expel these minority populations. We want to sterilize them. Um, When you hear these conspiratorial uh, talks about George Soros and, you know, the Jewish financier and how he's secretly running wokeness, um, that goes back to the same Jews run the world um, conspiracy theories that Gerald L.K. Smith and Father Coughlin And the right-wingers of that era were trumpeting.
1: And and there wasn't Musk then, but we had Ford.
2: Well, you had Charles Coughlin, a radio priest whose audience was in tens of millions. And you're right, who needs... That was the Tucker
1: Carlson of the day.
2: He was the Tucker Carlson of the day. He had the biggest radio audience in the country. And you're right, and you had Henry Ford putting out his anti-Semitic newspaper, The Dearborn Independent. You know, in the book I write about... um, One of Humphrey's real allies in Minneapolis, a guy named Sam Shiner, who was a lawyer who um, was kind of a one-man anti-defamation league, and his daughter is still alive. She's in her 80s. And I asked her what it was like for her to watch the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville a few years ago. And she said she wasn't surprised. She said her father used to say to her, the haters never go away, they just hide. And once you make it permissible for them to come out of hiding, you find out there are a lot more of them than you realized.
1: Sam, thanks so much for joining us. It's fascinating. I really encourage everyone to purchase your book, Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. It's coming out this week. It's your 10th book, uh, and it really connects the dots and gives us a, a big view of history and how progress has never come easy. It's always been a fight. And we're witnessing right now to many might seem overwhelming and daunting, but for our ancestors, this is what they went through. And this is our challenge right now. And we have to pave the way for the next generation. You have that exactly right,
2: Wajahat. Couldn't say it better. And it's just really always an honor to be with you. So thank you for
1: having me. Until next time, this is Wajahat Ali for Daniel Moody. And you've been listening to Democracy-ish.